You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. We thought you might like to know that there is an organization in Indianapolis that focuses on teen homelessness. Their name is Outreach Indiana, and you can learn more about them at outreachindiana.org. And today I have the privilege of speaking to their chief executive officer, Andrew Neal. We talk about how pervasive in Marion County homelessness is. How can they reach more and how can you help reach more homeless teens? And how does Indianapolis deal with homelessness in a way that other cities might not? Is that good or bad? We find out more here on The Chris Spangle Show. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Stephanie Solomon, Youth Programs Coordinator, thank you so much for joining me today on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. So tell me a little bit about what you do at the Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Sure, yeah. So um, I am the Youth Programs Coordinator. Um, And I'm part of the prevention team at the Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Um, We are the state coalition for domestic violence programs. Uh, I see us kind of as an umbrella for the domestic violence work that's being done across the state. Um, We have a really holistic approach um, from connecting survivors um, to whatever needs they have, whether that be housing, um, economic needs, legal needs, um, but also focusing on prevention. So doing what we need to do until violence ends. Um, and our strategies are really all based around supporting communities um, across Indiana in doing what they need to do to be safe, stable, and nurturing. So I think the listener's mind might jump directly to maybe uh, your organization is a women's shelter and you do direct intervention, but it's a little more complex. It's a very complex issue. I've had several friends in my life that have have gone through this, and there is an entire parastructure not just in intervention, but you said you work in prevention. Can you talk about the two differences? Like, what what's the difference between the prevention side and the intervention side? And is there other sides that I'm missing here? <laughs> um, I mean, I think there's always uh, multiple sides to any social issue that we talk about. Um, but when I think about the work of ICADV, um, we are we're doing both intervention and prevention. And so the intervention side is you're in a violent situation and you need legal representation or you need another place to stay. 
So either a domestic violence shelter um, or uh, supported housing of some kind. Um, and so we're not the place that you come to stay. Uh, we're not going to be uh, the organization that puts a roof over your head and, and has um, meals. We're the organization that's going to help you find um, whatever those resources are that you need. Um, so that's kind of the intervention side of what we do. So survivors across Indiana, they hit crisis and we intervene um, in, you know, in, in that really what I see as holistic way. Um, prevention is more saying that it doesn't have to be this way. Um, we do not have to see domestic violence as a given um, or as a norm. Um, and with the rates being what they are, we often assume this is just the way it is. And so we have to intervene because there's no other choice. Prevention is about what kind of conditions would allow for a world um, where we weren't needing to intervene in a regular way um, when it came to domestic violence, where we really could um, uh, support and promote health and well-being and safety um, for our communities. I don't want to be indelicate here. Um, I think when domestic violence is often talked about, it's sort of on the women and supporting women, right? Is there an emphasis in what you do on the prevention side that is more on the male side? And I'm not saying that all domestic violence, there are certainly men who go through domestic violence. I know we saw some debate around that with the Johnny Depp trial. Um, there is certainly abuse that happens towards men. Um, but, I mean, the numbers are largely on the male side. Is a little bit of your work trying to find strategies to help choose a different path than maybe leaping towards anger? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's because I focus on prevention with youth, um, the, when it comes to perpetrators of violence and, and gender, um, I, I mean, what I've seen as, as a person who's been doing prevention and social service work for a long time, um, is that a norm and an idea about domestic violence is that the perpetrators are men um, and the survivors, victims and then survivors are women. Um, but it's actually in many ways from a prevention perspective, a lot of those gender norms are what support violence in the first place. Um, and so it's, it's messier than that. Um, the idea that, um, that there, you know, there are neat categories of who is a perpetrator and who's a survivor. Um, and that has been a really um, interesting thing to learn about um, as I've entered this world. What are some things that you've seen that make you say that? Give us, give us, a, you know, kind of let us see through your eyes a little bit. Well, I mean, I guess the best um, example is that when I um, was in college in 2000 to 2004, um, the women's shelter in my community was a women's shelter. So regardless of the domestic violence that was taking place in your household, um, 
you had to be a woman in order to access um, shelter. And um, joining with ICADV and kind of watching um, as a person who's worked in social services for a long time and in nonprofits, um, we've seen that, um, you know, per perpetrators can be different genders. It doesn't follow this cultural story as closely as I, I mean, we want cultural stories to make sense of things. And right. sometimes they um, they miss really important details. And so a lot of shelters now are, are naming the fact that um, they aren't they aren't women's shelters. They're shelters for people who experience violence. I, I, I love that because I've, I've, I just, I've had situations in my, in my friend circle where the man has been the victim of domestic violence and that I found out was a miracle. <laughs> like, because it, opening up and saying that this was happening to me is just wrapped around so much shame for men and, it's very difficult and you don't know where to turn. And uh, so that's really interesting to hear that, that that need is kind of being seen and met. Yeah, it's I, I mean, I think that the it's it's one of the directions that we're going as a culture that is really challenging, but really necessary is really interrogating our assumptions about um, gender in general, but also the way that it shows up. So that stigma, the shame, um, that's, I mean, that's affecting all, all kinds of um, outcomes when it comes to domestic violence. Um, even just the idea that um, if you have disclosed that you experienced violence and then you stay with a partner, um, and there's lots of reasons why why people do. Um, often reaching out for resources um, feels inaccessible because folks are so ashamed. Um, and so that stigma and that shame, that's another one of those cultural norms um, that's affecting everyone um, and affecting um, men in this particular way because of um, what what our beliefs are about how men should move in the world. So you work primarily with youth, and I, I have to say I have become um, a much more open-minded person, a much more, uh, like, less narrow-minded, less... Uh, you know, I grew up unmarried with children. That was, like, my my performative show like so when you look back and like watch that show you're like wow that's why i had all these screwed up notions of masculinity and femininity and all this stuff kind of what you're talking about what are some other when, when you're talking with young people about cultural influences and you know i love the the mission of your organization which is an end to violence just period mm -hmm. not just domestic violence but violence Yep. which I can certainly sign on to. It's been a huge part of my broadcasting career is just talking about why are we turning to violent means? What are some ways that you're trying to help teens see a different path and see a different future that endorses nonviolence? Yeah. So, I mean, I think uh, I'm going to bring up the tension of the fact that we are seeing an increase in violence. Um, uh, within schools and 
for young people in general. Um, I was kind of shocked to learn that in Indiana, one in 10 high school age teens um, have reported experiencing some form of physical violence um, from a dating partner in the last year. Um, and so I want to name that before, before really going into, um, you know, how, how we're, how we can talk about violence prevention um, with young people is that they're coming in, um, in a cultural context that I think is a little different than I, I, you know, when I was a young person navigating these issues. Um, so we often talk about um, what are the gender norms that you're seeing around you? Um, what resonates with you in your experience and what doesn't? Um, and I find that that's a really helpful way to engage young people um, in those conversations because often, I mean, lots of, lots of young boys are sensitive um, and girls are, um, you know, assertive. And so some of these uh, binaries that we've created, um, you know, we see, we see it as adults, um, but imagine if we had been talking about that directly when we were young people. Uh, I'm not going to ask you your age. That would be impolite of me. I'm 38, um, you know, and growing up in the late 90s. Even I'm proud of my age. I am uh, fine to tell uh, you that uh, I just turned 40. Congra and congratulations. It, it, I was wisdom with it. Yes. And <laughs> you, you and I kind of went to school around the same time and... Uh, I think when you, you know, you said gender norms, so of course that triggers half the audience, but I think what I'm hearing you say is just making space for emotions and like not stereotyping people. Like one of the best things that ever happened to me was reading Brene Brown and going, oh, I'm allowed to like accept that I'm a sensitive person <laughs> like, and, and kind of uh, get away from some of that stuff. Is that, is that just such a necessary part? A, am I writing assessing what you're saying and then b is how important is that in reducing domestic violence among school age people i mean yeah i i think your your assessment is right on <laughs> um there is a i mean there's an association between um this feeling that i shouldn't show my emotions um and then venting or kind of exploding um, and having violence end up being the way that that emotions bubble up over time. I mean, we're all human, um, and so we're gonna we're gonna let that that energy out. Conflict is is part of life, um, and I think that. Um, Oh, I lost. I lost my train. No, you're I, you're good. I think it's exactly right. I think so. Tell me about how you. Like, is there exercises? Do you go into schools? Do you facilitate groups? Like, how do you actually facilitate these conversations with students? Yeah, so there's a lot of preventionists across the state that do go into schools and work directly with kids around healthy relationships. Um, but really, with our youth council, the idea is that we're looking more at systems than we are at interpersonal or, or, or like one-on-one -on -one relationships. Um, cause that's happening already. Um, 
a lot of our a lot of our communities and a lot of our member agencies are going into schools and having conversations with kids about things like consent and um, uh, healthy relationships. Um, but when I'm working with young people on our youth council, we're more talking about um, what are these bigger systems that are influencing what's happening to you at school. So there are those stories about, um, you know, the the relationships that are happening and friendships and um, and all of those interpersonal things that make up our lives. Um, but we're taking it a step further and we're saying, okay, what's influencing that? Um, and how can, how can we address those wider influences? One of my favorite stories that one of my colleagues tells is about a high school where in the hallway, there was this one spot um, where fights were regularly breaking out. Um, and the administration was like, is there, is there some solution to what we can do? Um, how do we talk to the kids about not fighting with each other? But it didn't end up being talking to kids that changed things. It was changing the route from class to class in the high school so that there wasn't this buildup of kids all in the same hallway trying to go opposite directions at the same time. Um, so in some ways, prevention work is about zooming out um, and offering the opportunity for young people to zoom out um, in a way that maybe as adults we can't because we're not walking, the like to use it as a metaphor, we're not walking the same hallways that they are every day. Yeah, I think the older I get, the more tasks I have, the more tasks I need to check off and the less I listen. Uh, <laughs> which is uh, especially a very middle-aged male thing to do. But uh, e part of your job is also just kind of giving teens more of a voice. So how how do you try to give teens more of a voice and what have you learned from them? Oh my gosh, that's a great question. I think, you know, w when I think about just the way that we orient towards young people. We want so badly to create safety for them. And then sometimes the things that we're doing, those tasks that you're talking about, um, can lead us to kind of, um, you know, not, not notice what they're trying to tell us. Um, and so I see the, the center of my work being listening deeply um, to young people um, and then also hearing from them, not just hearing their voices, but hearing um, the strategies and ideas that they have about what could improve the conditions in their own lives. Um, and what I'm hearing from kids is that they want connections. And I'm sure some of this is about, um, you know, the ways that the pandemic uh, impacted school for kids. Um, and some of those big policy, uh, policies led to isolation. Um, and my favorite thing that I'm hearing from kids uh, is how much they appreciate connecting um, with each other, first of all, but also with the caring adults in their lives. And we, we know that from studies um, done by the CDC around violence prevention, that have, having caring adults and mentors 
um, in the lives of young people who listen to them and support them um, can really change the trajectory um, of young people's lives. So, um, and, and I love that, that it feels like an honor that I get to hear the stories um, of young people, uh, especially as a 40 year old. <laughs> um, and some of it I connect with because I was a teenager at one point and some of it is so new. There was, as you know, there was no TikTok. There was no, I mean, the internet was just like a twinkle. It was in- the golden age. You had GeoCities yep. and you could go and then, and then Facebook ruined it all. And then these kids these days, Stephanie Solomon, of the Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence are just on their phones all day. You're telling me that they actually want to connect and to connect with people their parents' age? How how can that be true? And there are a lot of adult ears listening who have a lot of influence over, you know, maybe teenage kids. Like, what can adults do better to, to oh aid some of that? Chris, I want to flip that on its head because those adults these days can't get off their phones. You're a social worker. I've got friends in the social worker world at elementary schools saying kids are being, they're going through neglect because their parents are on their phone too much. Yeah. So um, I, I am, I'm in public health, so I won't claim to be any kind of counselor or, um, or therapist, but um, on a population level, um, I think the ad- one of the things that adults can do is pay attention to um, what's the environment when I'm around young people. So whether that's a teacher, an administrator, a parent, an aunt, an uncle, um, it, how attentive am I being to the young people that are, are around me and how available am I? Um, and it's I'm not blaming any of us on the individual level. We have a world where um, we have emails and texts and, you know, often the work-life boundaries have it so that there are people communicating with us all the time and there's a sense of urgency. Um, And so what would it look like as a culture if we said, um, if we put the urgency of our emails ahead of the urgency of being present with our young people, um, what could the world look like? Um, and so that is, that's, that's a norm that I think we as adults need to be attentive to is how can we, um, how can we also uh, pay attention to things other than uh, our phone? You know, it's not to drag current events into it, but we've just seen so many times and so many of these instance, instances of violence with young people. There were a lot of signs there, you know, and imagine if more parents, coaches, teachers, if I guess that's one question that I have that maybe you can answer that I always kind of see with some of these situations. I go, is there just not a network? Like, are the teachers not talking to each other or talking with local law enforcement or, you know, I I don't want to delve into specific acts like gun violence in schools or, but do you just sort of see those gaps where the the adults and some of these kids in crisis lives are not communicating or they're not intervening with clearly a young person is being violent or they see signs of somebody being abused and they're not willing to step in and how can we is that something that we can change or or are you working on 
Mm. I definitely believe it's something we can change. And I, I think, I, I think every question you've asked, I've brought it back to a norm. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, or some kind of cultural narrative, but we tend to silo ourselves. So if you're in law enforcement, um, you're in social services, you're in education, um, we're not great at communicating across across those sectors. Um, and so I think the promise is us really working on, um, you know, there's the assumption, it's not an assumption, it's a reality that we are all connected. Um, you know, somebody needs to pick the food that I eat um, uh, in order to have safety. There's all these different institutions that I need to have access to. Um, and so if we took that really seriously, how interconnected we all are, um, and we started breaking down those silos of communication um, and and collaborating together. Um, I think there's incredible promise in that. And I, I know that um, I know that those are just words. <laughs> um, but I think that um, I think that there are um, examples and models that we can practice with of how we can be um, working across our silos more effectively. Uh, you know, I don't know that they're just words. Like Indianapolis is a great city because it's got something special. It has a very strong civil sector to it. And it always has been. It's why we have so many monuments in downtown Indianapolis, because there were so many groups networked together. And I think it's as the population has grown, those relationships kind of fray and people, like you say, get siloed. Uh, but there is like a spirit around education, for instance, in Indianapolis, where there is a lot of cross communication. And I think with the rise in violence, maybe there's just some, again, to use the words, intentionality that, that all these different groups can kind of talk together. Um, so we're talking a little public policy and, and how that influences domestic violences and the conditions. You know, what are, what's another big, um, social norm that you see that kind of is a current that can lead somebody towards either being a victim victim or a perpetrator of domestic violence? What's one thing that really concerns you that we haven't talked about? Um, I mean, I think we talked about stigma and a lot of that stigma comes from this idea of privacy. Um, and that, uh, and that I see as coming from individualism, um, that we're all kind of, um, you know, our own, our own little, uh, there's, there's a good saying for that, but of course at the time I need it, I can't, um, we're all islands. <laughs> so, um, we have this, this feeling of like, um, if there's a problem, uh, it's, it's not necessarily socially appropriate to ask for help. And maybe in fact, it's seen as weak to ask for help. And I think that um, that is another narrative that we, um, that could be transformational for us to um, start connecting with our neighbors, with our communities in a way that breaks that individualism and um, where we can see the strength in asking for help. Um, 
I mean, it's incredible uh, what resources and supports we can offer each other um, when we're listening deeply and communicating clearly and authentically with one another. Um, so I think that's one where, you know, I, I understand the, um, the drive for um, self-sufficiency and kind of the roots in our culture for that. But I think that um, you brought up Brene Brown, um, connection is really powerful. So when we talk about um, violence prevention, um, that, uh, that connection piece, that um, uh, breaking of isolation, creation of belonging and inclusion, um, I think can go a long way um, to breaking some of those cycles of violence that we see, um, whether it's in, you know, a couple or on a, on a wider, on a wider scale. Yeah. There's, there's just no doubt that we have to be connected to each other and, and we're all, we're all in this together. Isolation as we've seen the last three years just doesn't, doesn't really work well for human beings. They like to be around people. All right. We yeah. end with shameless self. Well, let me ask you the question before the second to last thing. What do you see on a daily basis that you wish everybody understood about your work? Oh my gosh. Um, I, I think that what I see on a daily basis um, is the power of uh, a group of people coming together um, and really interrogating and looking at an issue and saying, how can we collaborate um, and what systems can we impact um, to make a better world. And that a lot of that starts with relationships, not just relationships, you know, with, you know, one-on-one -on -one, um, interpersonal relationships, but relationships with the organizations and institutions that surround us. Um, I'm talking about schools and libraries and um, community organizations working together. Um, so I, yeah, that's where I find my hope and my, and my promise. Um, and I think ICADV does that exceptionally well, especially on a state level. So we're talking really a broad, a broad group of, um, of humans and, and institutions um, and the kind of collaboration that it takes to, to change the world. You and I couldn't be more like-minded on so much of this. I mean, it's what I've been... That's the reason the show exists, is just to network people together and try to get people involved and get them engaged in their community again. And if they want to do that, shameless self-promotion time, uh, you know, how can people help your organization time-wise, monetarily? How, how can they help you specifically as the youth Programs Coordinator at the Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence? Well, if you go to our website, icadvinc.org, um, which I see is uh, along the bottom of the screen, that's one way. You can also find us on Facebook um, and other social media platforms. Um, I think Facebook is the most, the most active. Um, but there are opportunities to partner with us as a funder, um, to partner as a volunteer, um, to uh, partner um, with, with all the different things we do from uh, the crisis work to legal to prevention. 
um, specifically teenagers across Indiana or parents or guardians of teenagers um, have the opportunity to connect directly with our youth council through me. Um, and you can find that from the website or just directly contact me at S Solomon, and that's S S O L O M O N at icadvinc.org. Um, and I would be thrilled to have more young people from a wider swath of the of the state um, getting engaged um, in violence prevention and the bigger work of making this a better world for all of us. Stephanie Solomon of the Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence Youth Programs Coordinator. Thank you so much for being with me. We really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me, Chris.